It doesn't matter how many nutrient-dense foods you're eating, how much kale and quinoa and superfoods. If you are not getting an adequate amount of fuel, your body is going to be stressed and it won't be able to reap the benefits from those nutrients. Welcome to Shoulders Down, a podcast about intuitive eating and living. I'm your host, Leah Kern. And I'm an anti-diet dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. In this podcast, you will learn to harness your body's innate wisdom to govern not just how you eat, but also how you live. It is my mission to help you heal your relationship with food and body so you can live your most aligned and fulfilling life. Welcome, and I'm so glad that you're here. Hello and welcome back to Shoulders Down. I just want to say up front, there's some construction happening outside my window, so hopefully it doesn't become an issue, but here we are just trying to make it work. So today's episode is about the intersection of intuitive eating and food insecurity, and it's also about intuitive eating on a budget and the elements of intuitive eating that really involve privilege. So this is a topic that if you try to, you know, Google around, you probably won't find much on it. I mean, I I did, and there is not much out there on this topic. I think a lot of intuitive eating professionals are hesitant to talk about this topic because it could be hard to admit that there are any limitations to our beloved intuitive eating framework. Um, But the reality is that there are. And I also think that it's hard to talk about this topic because it's hard to talk about things where there aren't really like clear or satisfying answers. All of that being said, I really feel it's important to dive into this topic. It's something that's come up in some listener questions, and it's something just on my own heart that feel it feels important to address. It, it feels important to not just leave this like gaping hole in the conversation. And so I'll say up front that like I absolutely don't have all the answers, first of all. This conversation, it's not a conversation because it's just me talking to me. This is a solo episode. I don't know if I said that yet. And the reason for that is because it just feels like the kind of thing, like I said, I I don't think many people are are talking about. And so um, I didn't have an encounter like the right guest to really dive into this with. So it feels like something that's just for now more appropriate that I cover myself. Perhaps at some point in the future, I will get connected to a guest that would be a good fit for this topic and we can revisit it. But with that being said, this episode that you're about to hear is one where I I, want to say like, it does feel a little intimidating to talk about and and I, I do feel like this need to get it right. And I share that with you from a place of transparency. And also I, I really am working on releasing that that need to like get it perfectly right and know that just by having this conversation, exploring some of these topics, that is doing a service to, to this community because it's not ignoring a really important part of the conversation, which is the elements of privilege with intuitive eating and the reality that it, of food insecurity that many, many folks in this country face, or not even just this country, in, in the world. So all of that being said, I I am excited to dive into this topic because I, I always aim to cover topics where it's like there aren't other resources on these topics. Like I really scarcely found a few blog posts and I look forward to being able to offer at least something for people to start with when it comes to these topics. So this episode was inspired, um, like I said, by many different avenues, but there was one listener question that 
is going to be at play here. And so the, I'll redo the question. The question is, how do you deal with intuitive eating when considered considering food waste and a lack of income? So lack of income and food waste are absolutely important parts of the, of the conversation. The answer to that question is just going to be like one piece of this whole episode. We're going to answer that question and go beyond. So before going any further, I just want to give my standard disclaimer anytime I'm answering a question or just providing this this information. It goes without saying, um, but it's important to me that you know that all content in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. The information and education provided is not intended or implied to supplement or replace professional medical treatment, advice, and or diagnoses. And on top of that, I'm only one person with one lived experience. So I encourage you to seek out insights from folks with other lived experiences as well. On top of that, I encourage you to consult your own inner wisdom. That's what we're all about here. Okay, so first, I want to acknowledge, you know, this topic is is about privilege, right? It's about privilege, um, food insecurity, and financial hardship. I want to acknowledge completely loud and clear and transparently that I have never personally experienced food insecurity or been in a situation where I didn't have physical access to adequate and satisfying food. I do not have lived experience of navigating intuitive eating with these barriers. So that's really important to me that you know up front because I'm going to be speaking here from my professional experience as a dietitian and my training as an intuitive eating dietitian specifically, and also just my knowledge from from you know being a person in the world. But importantly, this is not coming from a place of lived experience. And I recognize that there can be certain holes or blind spots as a result of not bringing my lived experience to this conversation. Again, I want to acknowledge that and, and say that you know I attempt to address this topic to the best of my ability, given the lack of lived experience. Though I don't have the lived experience with food insecurity, I do have some experience navigating intuitive eating on a budget, um, such as like when I was in college and wasn't really making money. And I want to name loud and clear that being on a budget is not the same as being in a situation of true food scarcity. And I in no way intend to imply that. However, there are some some there is an element of lived experience when I when I'm going to offer the advice about intuitive eating um, on a budget. So, those are all the disclaimers and. Again, my goal with this episode is to illuminate the ways in which struggling with food insecurity creates barriers to intuitive eating. This is an important and honest conversation about the often unspoken truth that intuitive eating does in many ways hinge on a certain degree of privilege. I aim to offer some options for support on your intuitive eating journey in the case that you are someone struggling with food insecurity or financial hardship. So, The way I see this, the way this episode is going to be organized, there are some principles of intuitive eating that are very difficult, if not impossible to honor if you struggle financially or if you struggle with food insecurity. But at the same time, there are many principles that can be supportive to practice for your overall health and well-being if you are a person who struggles with food insecurity or if you just broadly struggle financially. So let's unpack this. We're going to start by looking at why and how is intuitive eating a privilege just to kind of name the elephant in the room and really get clear on what I mean when I say that intuitive eating is a privilege. Okay, so there are 10 principles of intuitive eating. So some of these principles can be really difficult to 
practice if you are in a situation where you deal with food insecurity. At the same time, some of these principles can help if you are in a situation of food insecurity or like I keep saying more broadly, just um, financial hardship. So we're going to start by looking at what principles could be difficult to practice given the situation that a person is is dealing with food insecurity or financial stress. So we're going to kind of go through an order. I'm not going to address every principle. I'm just going to hit on the ones that are relevant. So principle two of intuitive eating is honor your hunger. Very simply put, it's about eating when you're hungry as opposed to diet culture, which is about like governing your hunger based on like a calorie tracking app or, you know, a set of rules or, you know, the time of day in the case of intermittent fasting, etc. So intuitive eating is about eat when you have hunger cues. And so in order to do this, in order to honor your hunger, you need consistent and reliable access to food. This means both financial access and physical access, such as in the case of like being in a food desert, a place where there is not adequate food available within like a reasonable distance. So in order to work to rebuild trust with your body, you need to show your body that you will feed it when it's hungry. If you cannot afford to simply feed your body when it's hungry, this can interfere with the process of rebuilding trust with your body. So this that's to me kind of like the most glaring aspect of intuitive eating that would be difficult to practice if you are struggling with food insecurity. The next one is principle five, which is discover the satisfaction factor. Infusing satisfaction can be difficult to prioritize when you're worried about baseline just getting your physical needs for food met. It's likely not your priority to have like the most satisfying food. If you're truly dealing with food insecurity, your priority is more likely just adequacy, like getting enough fuel to sustain yourself. The next principle that um, kind of raises an issue in in the case of food insecurity is um, feel your fullness, principle six. So feel your fullness is about learning to respect your fullness and stop before you getting you get to the place of feeling physically uncomfortable. Part of being able to stop when full is trusting that you'll be able to have reliable access to food again when you get hungry. And of course, if you're struggling with food insecurity, the reality might be that you really don't know if you'll have reliable access to food again when you get hungry. This makes stopping when you're full very difficult. And this is a survival mechanism, by the way. It's your body trying to protect you from starvation by sort of like stocking up on fuel while you get the chance, while you have the chance before food becomes scarce again in the future. The next principle that can be difficult to honor in the case of this one, I think, is more broadly, you know, not just food insecurity, but more broadly, um, a person uh, dealing with low socioeconomic status or financial hardship. So this is principle nine of intuitive eating, which is titled movement, feel the difference. This principle involves integrating movement without making it about manipulating the size or shape of your body. It's about moving for the way it feels, not for the way it might change your appearance. So for a person struggling financially, the barrier could be a lack of time to move or a lack of extra available energy to use on movement in the case that, you know, your life is highly stressful or in the case that you work long hours, this would leave you little extra available energy to move. And, you know, it's, it's, we know that dealing with financial stress can really result in chronic stress. And we know that chronic stress really can deplete a person of their energy baseline, that base, that kind of chronic worry of 
will I be able to afford the, the things I need to afford in my life or for my family, these things can really pile up and create an amount of chronic stress that, again, can zap you of your energy, which can make it difficult to simply move your body because you don't have extra energy to use on moving your body. I really can't stand when diet culture makes it seem like exercise is accessible to all without considering the social determinants of health that might make it difficult for a person to find the extra energy to work out. They're like, oh, you just need willpower. But in reality, rest might serve this person better as opposed to trying to stress over fitting working out into an already busy and stressful schedule. Of course, everyone is different and for some movement might serve as a good stress relief, but the overall pressure to add movement into one's life, even if it's from a place of uh, aligned with intuitive eating, even if it's from this place of wanting to move your body for how it makes you feel versus the diet culture intention, which is about how it makes you look, it can still add pressure for the person who is struggling financially because they could feel like I just don't have the capacity or bandwidth to add movement into my life, given the amount of stress that I, I, I already have right now. And then lastly, principle 10, which is the t- the last principle of intuitive eating, is honor your health with gentle nutrition. So this principle involves making choices that support your health and your taste buds while also making you feel good. Gentle nutrition is about nutrition from a place of self-care, not self-control. And similar to the movement principle, it's about eating for the way that you want to feel in your body as opposed to eating for the way that you believe it could manipulate your appearance or the size or shape of your body. A person who struggles with food insecurity might not have access to more nutrient-dense foods, especially in the case of living in a food desert, um, which just to officially define, I know I said that word earlier, and I recognize it might not be a term everyone knows, this is an area with limited access to affordable nutrient-dense foods. So aside from the the access piece and the affordability piece of nutrient-dense foods, it's also important to consider that energy density in a food will likely be the priority over nutrient density. Because in the case of food insecurity, the concern is baseline getting enough fuel in. And nutrient-dense foods, it's, you know, okay, great, they have a lot of nutrients, but they often don't have a lot of energy. A lot of fruits, vegetables, um, these things have, yes, a lot of vitamins and minerals, but not a lot of calories and calories are energy. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much kale or quinoa or superfoods you have. If your body is baseline underfueled from, it could be from food insecurity, it could be from dieting, you will not be able to reap the benefits of these quote unquote superfoods or of these nutrients because your body will be in a baseline stressed out state. Another way to say this is just like, if you aren't eating enough, your body won't be able to reap the benefits of the nutrient dense foods because it will be stressed from the experience of starvation. So in summary, with honor your health, with gentle nutrition, this principle, gentle nutrition will likely not be the most effective thing to focus on for a person who is dealing with food insecurity. It likely makes more sense to focus on adequacy, getting enough fuel in, because that is baseline more important than focusing on the nutrient density. Okay, so these are, the way I see it, these are sort of the issues that can come up for a person struggling with food insecurity who is trying to practice intuitive eating. 
However, there's a flip side to this. So the flip side is that there are many aspects of intuitive eating that would actually be incredibly supportive for someone who is struggling with food insecurity or financial hardship. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through the principles again, but looking at how is this principle supportive to practice for the person who's struggling with food insecurity or financial hardship? Some of them, it's, you know, there are both aspects of the principle that are, would be difficult to practice and also other aspects of the principle that would be supportive to practice. So we're going to go through again, the principles, and then we'll, uh, We'll synthesize. I feel like I'm like reading a a paper right now. (laughs) Um, Okay, so principle one of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. So this principle is about opting out of diet culture, opting out of the system of oppression that feeds you the idea that a smaller body is better, that your body can't be trusted, that you need to follow an outside protocol or set of rules to govern your eating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know by now, if you listen to this podcast, diet culture, what it is, how it shows up. So practicing this principle, rejecting the diet mentality, can be supportive for folks facing financial hardship because it frees them of the feeling of obligation to spend excessive money on diets. Diet culture steals your time and your money. And both of of those resources, time and money, can be scarce when struggling to make ends meet financially. So rejecting the diet mentality means not spending time locking calories into an app, going to Weight Watcher meetings, paying for endless, and I say endless because none of them ever work, memberships, programs, diet books, special diet foods, apps, meal plans, etc. One specific manifestation of diet culture that has become recently more trendy is what we call wellness culture. Wellness culture is like diet culture, except much sneakier. So instead of selling you explicit rules and meal plans and point systems, it sells you the idea that there are good and bad foods, or sometimes they use the words clean foods and junk foods. Essentially, they sell you on this idea that there are foods that promise optimal well-being and health, and then there are foods that will certainly lead to sickness and poor health. There's very much this dichotomous thinking, this good versus bad, this catastrophizing, like a food is either supporting your health or damaging it. There's no gray area. It's very black and white. And of course, there's this moral value aspect, right? Where like the good foods make you morally good and the bad foods mean that you are a bad person. Obviously, that's not true. That's just me kind of summarizing the wellness culture message. So wellness culture's definition of health is very much, you know, this idea of like clean, organic, whole, unprocessed superfoods, plus, you know, these expensive supplements like collagen powder and athletic greens and whatever it is. Wellness culture also promotes a certain aesthetic of health, um, which, you know, you've probably seen on social media, which is this kind of like expensive matching workout sets, you know, expensive boutique fitness classes, such as Soul Cycle, Orange Theory, which there's nothing wrong with those classes. They just am illuminating the ways in which like wellness culture manifests. And so this definition and picture of health is incredibly elitist as it only is accessible to those with the financial means to participate in purchasing the expensive foods and obscure supplements and fancy workout classes, plus the accompanying, you know, accoutrements that come with the fancy workout classes, whatever it is, the 
the yoga matching yoga sets and I don't know whatever else comes with what else like I don't know the, I'm thinking of Peloton and the, the shoes like there's always like sh- extra shit you need so Opting out of this specific manifestation of diet culture means saving a ton of money, money that you perhaps would have felt pressure to spend on expensive foods and workout gear and workout classes if you were subscribing to the diet mentality. Understanding that the diet and wellness industry profits off of making you feel like you are never enough and always need something outside of yourself to achieve health can be incredibly powerful and freeing for people of any socioeconomic status, but in particular, this principle of intuitive eating, reject the diet mentality, can provide great relief to the person struggling financially because rejecting the diet mentality can mean being free from the shame and subsequent stress that can come with the feeling of obligation or pressure to participate in expensive diet and wellness trends. All of this to say, pretty much, when you opt out of wellness culture, you don't have to spend money on shit that like you are being marketed to believe that you need. And you end up saving a ton of money because you're not walking around convinced that you need like bee pollen and chia seeds and hemp's and all this stuff in order to be healthy or valid. Uh, that that one I'm really passionate about. I, I, I think that's a very much overlooked aspect going on here in this conversation. Okay, so the next principle that can be supportive to practice for the person dealing with food insecurity or, again, financial hardship is principle four, challenge the food police. So challenging the food police is all about getting rid of the morality with food. You are not good for eating a certain food or bad for eating another. This principle can be profoundly supportive to folks struggling with financial stability and or food insecurity because it takes away a source of unnecessary stress. Feeling guilty for your food choices causes a stress response in your body. Stress is not good for your body. We know what happens when you have um, chronic stress. It sets off a cascade stress response in the body, which ultimately resorts in chronically high cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, which can lead to issues, um, you know, widespread in the body, um, digestive issues. It can lead to things like anxiety. It can lead to uh, inflammation. It can lead to um, a, a, diff- a inhibited immune response. That's a side note, but chronic stress is not good for the body. This is very well researched. So someone struggling with food security or um, just struggling financially in general is likely already facing a great deal of stress just from the baseline day to day of trying to make ends meet. So feeling guilty for their eating decisions is a source of unnecessary stress that doesn't need to be added to the pile of very real stress that they are already dealing with given their life situation. So making peace with food helps to realize that food is just food. All foods have something useful to offer the body. No one food is morally superior than another. Therefore, there's no reason to feel guilty for the things that you eat. Also, the foods a person struggling with food insecurity has access to are very likely foods that diet culture deems bad, which would only add more stress to the situation because it could lead a person to feel like, oh my God, the food that I have access to is like, you know, bad. I shouldn't be eating it. This could cause a person to try and spend their limited income 
for food on organic produce or other foods that diet culture touts as healthy instead of spending it on energy-dense foods, which could mean treating having an adequate amount of food for having an inadequate amount of of energy, fuel, and instead having these like trendy nutrient-dense foods, which again, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, it doesn't matter how many nutrient-dense foods you're eating, how much kale and quinoa and superfoods, if you are not getting an adequate amount of fuel, your body is going to be stressed and it won't be able to reap the benefits from those nutrients because it will be stressed from the experience of starvation. So learning and internalizing that there is no morality with food, there are no good foods, there are no bad foods, through this principle, challenge the food police, this can really help a person feel so much less stress when when eating, which can lead to improved quality of life. No morality with food also means that things like frozen foods, including like frozen produce or canned foods, any of these things which are often cheaper and more accessible, this means that those foods aren't seen as inferior. And for folks in areas with limited access, frozen foods, canned foods can be a great tool to lean into. If diet culture makes a person feel bad about consuming these frozen foods, canned foods, convenience foods, ultimately, then a person might skip out on this great opportunity to get uh, varied nutrients. And then that could lead to health issues in and of itself. So diet culture's fixation on good and bad ultimately can can lead to so much more stress and shame for the per- for anyone right for anyone of any so- socioeconomic status but particularly in the case of someone struggling with food insecurity the foods that they often have access to are the ones that diet culture is demonizing so this creates an even added layer of stress and shame and the stress is not good for the body. So implementing this principle, challenge the food police, can be this powerful way to at least not feel stress about food. Of course, a person dealing with food insecurity is going to have stress from other avenues, but at least there won't be this unnecessary added level of stress about like if you're being good or bad or the morality around the foods that you're choosing. Just a little fun fact on um, speaking of frozen foods. Did you know that frozen produce often have more nutrients than the fresh ones because they are frozen at peak freshness, whereas the fresh ones are picked and as they sit, you know, after they're picked or after they're harvested, sometimes um, the nutrition quality can begin to decline by the time it makes it to, you know, your kitchen from, you know, the truck it went on and how off long it sat in the store. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with consuming fresh produce. I'm not in the practice of like obsessing over these little details and that like, oh, there's a little decline in nutritional value um, it, for the fresh ones compared to the frozen ones. Absolutely not. You should choose whatever you like. But in the case of this conversation, the demonization of like frozen produce is additionally absurd because often they actually have more nutritional value than the fresh ones because like I said, they're frozen at peak ripeness. So there's another example of just this kind of like elitist thread that goes throughout um, diet culture, wellness culture that that shames frozen fruits and veggies when really if we someone were to actually look at the science, often they have more nutrition. So take that diet culture. <laughs> Um, Okay, so that was principle four, challenge the food police. 
The next one that can be supportive to practice, now this one's interesting because we also spoke about it from the lens of something that could be difficult to practice um, when you're struggling with financial hardship is principle nine, again, movement. It's called movement, feel the difference. So we spoke about how a person might not have extra energy to expend on movement in the case that they are dealing with the stresses that come with food insecurity or um, financial hardship. However, there's sort of this other side to the coin where the way that intuitive eating defines movement it's it it redefines movement. It's not diet culture's definition. So it doesn't have to happen in a gym for a set period of time. You don't have to be wearing any fancy workout gear, such as, you know, the way wellness po- culture portrays movement with the matching workout sets and you need your Fitbit or your Apple Watch to track your thing. No, you don't need any of that in terms of diet culture's definition. Any form of movement counts. So this redefining is supportive for folks struggling financially, because if a person already has a lack of time and money, it's often not realistic to expect them to carve out separate time and spend more money to work out. So according to the intuitive eating approach to movement, movement can be built into everyday activities. It could mean household chores or doing laundry, doing dishes, changing sheets, cleaning the house. All of these things count in this reframe of movement. And this expands the definition of movement away from diet culture's rigid definition, which can function to free a person from the stress of having to spend extra time and money to move in a way that diet culture deems acceptable. This makes movement more accessible and therefore more realistic for folks of any socioeconomic status to think about integrating. The way I see this, it's just like diet culture can be so intimidating. You have to do these things. And like, I think of like the language that comes with diet culture, like earn and burn and sculpt. And it's like so uninviting and scary. Whereas with intuitive eating, we're like, hey, movement is anything that isn't being sedentary. Movement is doing any chores. Or if you have a job that's on your feet, like, hey, that counts as movement, um, which can really help a person shift their perspective and feel... um and lean into exploring the benefits of of how it feels to move as a part of like every day, as opposed to trying to add movement into an already busy schedule, at, which can be very stressful, add extra stress, which at the end of the day is not serving you. And lastly, we have principle 10, which is again, honor your health with gentle nutrition. So this is another of, of the principles where there are aspects of this principle that can be difficult to practice for the person struggling with food insecurity. And also there are aspects of the principle that can be really supportive for the person struggling with food insecurity. So again, honor your health with gentle nutrition focuses on the idea that nutrition doesn't have to be perfect. So you won't suddenly develop a nutrient deficiency if you don't eat a nutrient-dense food for a day or a week or even a month. The goal is to strive towards adding in the nutrient-dense foods when possible, instead of the sort of the diet culture rhetoric, which is, you know, restrict, limit. And if we think about this, the person struggling with food insecurity, it's really dangerous for them to think about limiting. Like maybe they are steeped in the diet culture propaganda and they're like, oh no, I should go sugar-free and gluten-free. And that's really dangerous because 
this limits the kinds of foods one can eat. And for someone who with already limited access to food, this can create even more stress and make having an adequate amount of fuel even more difficult to attain. So the gentle nutrition principles focus on adding things in when possible or when you crave them, when it's accessible versus taking things away or restricting things can be incredibly supportive to a person struggling with um, food insecurity because it, it really flips the the goal here then the, the goal is you know when when a fruit or vegetable or another nutrient dense food is accessible and when the finances or the physical access permits it can be something that's great to add in um, but if not the language around nutrition isn't so rigid and fear-mongering. It's kind of just like, okay, well, you know, there, there's no perfect nutrition. You won't suddenly develop a nutrient deficiency if you don't eat a vegetable every day. It's okay. The goal is to add in when you can. So it, it kind of takes away a lot of the shame that diet culture infuses around nutrition, which again, we know shame causes stress in the body and stress causes a physical physiological stress response, which isn't healthy. So this gentle nutrition approach is supportive for so many reasons. So in summary, practicing many of these intuitive eating principles can greatly reduce guilt and therefore shame and therefore stress for anyone, right? Like not just someone struggling with food insecurity, but really anyone. It's it's healthful and beneficial to feel less stress and to experience less stress on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we eat every day. So if food is a trigger for stress, that could result in a chronic stress situation um, very quickly. And so, like I said, these principles can be supportive to reduce stress for anyone. However, in the case of someone dealing with um, financial hardship or food insecurity, they likely already have a great deal of chronic stress as a result of just their current life situation. And so in this case, practicing aspects of intuitive eating to help release some of that stress, especially some of that, well, I'll say unnecessary stress because food shouldn't be stressful in the sense that like you shouldn't feel like you're committing a crime if you eat something processed or or sweetened. It's absolutely bananas that like diet culture has gotten us to this place where we feel such intense stress about our eating decisions. And so really what what a lot of these principles come down to in terms of how they can be supportive is that they help to reduce some of the stress that a person could be experiencing around food. Okay, so we've looked at the ways in which intuitive eating is a privilege and sort of the the barriers, the principles that have that would be difficult to practice if you're experiencing food insecurity. And then we also looked at kind of from the flip side, the ways in which the intuitive eating principles can be supportive for a person experiencing food insecurity or more broadly financial stress. There were a few of the principles that we went over that would be difficult to practice for someone dealing with food insecurity that we kind of didn't address the other side. We just kind of left it hanging, right? So um, some of them we we talked about like the flip side, but some of them we didn't. So we didn't talk about the flip side of principle two, which is honor your hunger. 
like we said, in order to honor your hunger, you need consistent and reliable physical access and financial access to food. So what do you do if you don't have food security? How do you honor your hunger? Again, I want to say here, I have not had this lived experience. These are my suggestions for where one might start if this is your situation. And I also just want to say, if this is your current situation, I send you so much love and compassion. I absolutely don't want to suggest that like, oh, just here's a few simple steps to get out of your 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 situation of food insecurity because it is not that simple. And I know that these there's so much intersectionality here and there's so much more than just like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and making this change. It's it's very much a systemic issue. With that being said, some places to start. First of all, if you are not already familiar with or you're not already enrolled in a program like SNAP, which stands for which stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, this this is one of our government's um, nutrition programs that's available for aid um, for folks who qualify. This can, could be something to look into. So this could be a way to get some help, some supplemental income to be used towards food on a monthly basis. And I want to say like, there is no shame in reaching out for help. Though I, I, again, I'm just so careful of the reality that, you know, it's easier to, it's easier said than done that there's no shame. Of course, the feelings are valid that come up when thinking about, you know, being a person who uses one of these services. Um, If it's helpful, I I can share that. I, I worked at Trader Joe's for three years. I'm, I, I share that intermittently on across all my platforms. And uh, Trader Joe's is a grocery store, so we accept SNAP benefits. And I worked at Trader Joe's in both Vermont and New York City. And it definitely was a little surprising to me to to realize like so many people are leaning into or are utilizing these benefits. And I think it made me really like kind of check my own bias and and judgments because there is no look, right? There is no look of someone who is using these benefits that you think like, oh, like I'm not that person. Like I I don't, it's not like the picture in your head of someone who uses government aid. Um, But I can say like, I have checked out, oh my God, I can't even put a number to it. Like how many people I've rung up at the cash register in three years, but so many human beings and people who use their snap card, all different ages, all different backgrounds, um, genders. So I share that just because I hope it's it's helpful to, I, I always find kind of the knowing of like, we're not alone. It's just something that like no one really talks about. Um, I always find knowing that I'm not alone to be really helpful. So I share that with with that intention. Other options aside from a government aid program like SNAP is what we spoke about earlier, really leaning into frozen foods and energy dense foods to get the most bang for your buck. So energy dense foods literally could mean, you know, um, fast food, chicken, burgers, fries. These things are supportive in that they're the most bang for your buck. And like we said, it doesn't matter how much fruits and vegetables you're eating. If you are baseline, not getting your energetic needs met, your body will be stressed from being in a state of starvation and it will not be able to reap the benefits from that, from those nutrients. So our first concern is adequacy. We want to make sure you're getting enough fuel in. Energy dense foods can be a really supportive way to 
to do this. Um, I always like to just unpack for a second. Like anyone who's like, ugh, like Burger King, like I don't know, Burger King just came to mind. Like it's so unhealthy or like fast food is so unhealthy. And from a nutrition standpoint, I studied nutrition science for six years. It is actually quite optimized, right? Like there, so say like a burger and fries. Okay, we have protein from the burger. We have carbs from the bun. We have fat, um, maybe from, probably some from the burger. Probably um, if there was cheese on it, there'd be fat from there too. Or maybe from the sauce, there'd be some fat. And if there's a little like lettuce, tomato, pickle situation, that's a little bit of fiber, some micronutrients as well. And a side of fries on the side is um, carbs. And, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, when an eating experience, a meal, a snack has carbs, protein, fat, fiber, as far as we're concerned, that's a fairly optimized eating experience. So uh, in terms of like your blood sugar levels and and its um, impact on, on your metabolism, all these things, anytime someone's like, shitting on fast food i just like to like pose that because really there's nothing wrong with it and every food has something to offer like diet culture always has us thinking in terms of how is this food supposedly harming me whereas intuitive eating has us thinking like what is this food offering me every food offers something so i mean we can break it down even further the potatoes from the fries have potassium the burger has iron which is, you know, potassium, iron, these are important micronutrients. The bread probably has some B vitamins. A lot of um, flour products are enriched with B vitamins, B12, B1, B2, whatever, all the B vitamins, which are important for energy metabolism. So all of these foods have something to offer this like black and white thinking of like McDonald's or Burger King is bad. And like, Whole Foods is good is so reductionist because all foods have something to offer. That was a little bit of a side tangent, but going back to principle two, honor your hunger, what to do if you don't have food security. So we spoke about SNAP. Um, the We spoke about leaning into energy dense foods to get the most bang for your buck, um, frozen foods, canned foods, all of those things. And then the, the other thing is considering things like community gardens, food drives where you can get staples like shelf stable items and other community options like perhaps a church or synagogue has options for support for folks struggling in this way. Um, One other thing I'd add in here is depending where you live, sometimes there are these options for lower cost grocery stores um, because of like the private label. So I know stores like Aldi, Trader Joe's, a lot of people think it's like bougie specialty grocery, but because they have the private label, um, they're actually able to keep their their margins very low, meaning like they give you like the lowest possible price. So I, I've spoken to a lot of people who are like, no, Trader Joe's is expensive, but it's I think people have this like misunderstanding because it's not like a conventional grocery store. Uh, often Trader Joe's is actually... Um, much more affordable than a conventional grocery store. So those are options to consider again. Okay, so then the next one is principle five, um, discover the satisfaction factor. We did not talk about sort of the resolution here and, and we know how one could navigate this if they were struggling with food insecurity. So if this is difficult to prioritize because you're like, I can't think about satisfaction, I just have to think about getting fuel in, a few very little things that you could do that could really make a huge difference in your satisfaction 
are um, investing in some things like spices and condiments. They tend to be fairly inexpensive and having a few spices and condiments on hands that, that you like can allow you to spruce up frozen meals or spruce up um, more bland meals that are maybe more affordable and can really, really enhance your, your satisfaction. And they also can last a long time. Like I, so many of these condiments like ketchup mayo or like, I don't know, maybe it's something a little bit more um, obscure. Some people are really into hot sauces and those kind of things those things can last for a while without you having to worry about them going bad um, or spoiling, which is also a nice relief as well. And you could use them on like many different meals. So experimenting with some spices and condiments. Um, And also another thing is say that you have a bunch of like frozen meals on, on hand for the week, or just like you have the food that you have for the week. One way to lean into a little to satisfaction is to think about like, okay, this is what I have access to. It's like XYZ meal. What am I feeling like most in the mood for tonight? So giving yourself, asking yourself the question of like, given the choices I have, what sounds the best right now? That can be a way to tap into your satisfaction, uh, um, you know, instead of thinking about like, what do I want that I don't have based on what I do have, what sounds the best right now can be a way to still honor your satisfaction um, in a small way with in the limits of what you have access to. And then the last thing here is like satisfaction doesn't just have to be about food. So um, perhaps putting on some music or watching a show unpopular opinion, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, um, you know, multitasking when eating so long as the thing that you're watching or listening to does not induce stress. It's like a funny show or a relaxing show or, you know, a mindless podcast or something. I don't know, because if it doesn't induce stress, then your body, perhaps it relaxes you to listen to or watch. And that can be supportive of um, putting your body in the activating parasympathetic nervous system, which can actually be really helpful. We Parasympathetic nervous system is nicknamed the rest and digest system. So I really believe there's nothing wrong with that. We can talk more on that another time. But sometimes the environment that you eat in can contribute to satisfaction. So some music or I don't know if it's possible to eat outside um, or watch a show or maybe call a friend while you eat. Any of those things you could play with are um, either like low cost or free and can actually enhance your satisfaction of your eating experience. And then the last one um, in this category of like things that came up as barriers, but that we didn't address yet is principle six, feel your fullness, which involves learning to respect your fullness and stop eating before you get to a place of feeling physically uncomfortable. So as we spoke about, part of being able to stop when full is trusting that you'll be able to have reliable access to food again when you get hungry. And of course, if you're struggling with food insecurity, the reality might be that you really don't know if you'll have reliable access to food again when you get hungry. So this can make stopping when full difficult. So options for support here, I, I think this one is is very hard. It's your body trying to protect you and trying to say, let's eat now while we can in case we don't have access to fuel when we get hungry again. Is your body responding to a very real threat in its environment and it's it's attempting to support you? So 
I think this one is is difficult. And quite honestly, um, I don't have much to say here except just that like, yeah, this is hard. I think recognizing that this is why it's hard to stop when you're full can be at least validating. And the other thing I would offer here is a reminder that one of the official definitions of intuitive eating is that it is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and logic. So I think here with the difficulty stopping when full, if you struggle with food insecurity, I think it can be really powerful to lean into the logical aspect of intuitive eating. So intuitive eating is not all about instinct. There is this emotional component and this logical component. I think the logical component can be really helpful to to lean into. So say you're getting full, you can feel the sensations of physical fullness, yet you're having a difficult time stopping because you're like, oh my God, I don't know if there'll be food available again in the future. Having sort of an internal dialogue with yourself of like, okay, these fears are valid because your lived experience is true. It's true food scarcity. So these fears are valid. This is coming from a place of my body trying to protect me. And I am going to pack this up, put it in the fridge if if that's possible or um, pantry or whatever, depending on what you're eating. And I know that I can eat it later if I get hungry. So this can be just like uh, this little kind of internal dialogue talk track around like identifying what's happening, validating that it's happening for a reason, it's serving you. And then affirming to yourself of like, Yes, it might be the case that food actually isn't always available, but if possible to pack up leftovers, then you can kind of affirm to yourself like, hey, they're going to be here. They're going to be in the fridge in a Tupperware or wrapped in tinfoil on the counter or whatever it is. And it will be more enjoyable and more physically comfortable to go back to eating that thing when hunger strikes versus to eat past comfortable fullness right now out of this like automatic habit of feeling like we have to because um, because of our history with food insecurity or food scarcity. You know, on this topic as well, I would I would again really strongly recommend looking into options for support because at the end of the day, the way to address difficulty stopping when full because of true food scarcity is trying to address it at the root by working to get the resources to get out of the situation where food scarcity is the problem. And again, I'm I'm never suggesting that like you should you should just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and like get yourself out of the situation. It is so much more complex and systemic than that. Um and I I completely recognize that and it really irks me when people just make it seem so simple. With that being said, I, I would encourage you to look into the options for support that are available. So I already mentioned SNAP. On top of that, there are some other government assistance programs. Um, WIC, which is the specific f- food assistance program for women, infants, and children. SNAP, or, or I already said SNAP. Um, and then there's NSLP, which is the National School Lunch Program. So again, for um, families with children, it, giving them free or reduced lunch. Um, and sometimes breakfast as well at school. So that can be helpful in the sense that um, if you're if you're a person with children, getting more support for food for the family can hopefully work to reduce the stress for food um, for you if, if you have more resources coming in altogether. Okay, so that wraps up the 
two segments of this conversation. Again, the way I see it, there are aspects of intuitive eating that would be difficult to practice for a person struggling with food insecurity. And there are other aspects that actually are incredibly supportive for a person dealing with food insecurity or more broadly, just financial hardship. I think looking at it this way is is, um, actually really interesting. And it kind of forces us to acknowledge that like it's neither here nor there. It's not impossible to practice any of intuitive eating if if you are dealing with food insecurity. It's not that like this isn't accessible to you at all. If you can even implement some of these principles, like I said earlier, it can really help to alleviate some unnecessary stress in your life, which can be beneficial to your overall health and well-being. And I think it's important to say like yes, I obviously love intuitive eating and I will I will talk about it every chance I get for the rest of my life because I really believe in the power of this framework and its ability to truly change lives. I think with that being said, it's important to recognize that like there is this situation where intuitive eating isn't perfect and there are are aspects of it that um, could be inaccessible to a person given their financial status or um, given their current life situation. So it's like, it feels hard to even, I'll say it, I'll say it, like it feels hard to even like knock down this framework that I absolutely love with all of my heart and that I absolutely believe in. But I think this is important to kind of model that like things aren't black and white. It's both and like intuitive eating is incredibly powerful and transformative. I've seen it in my own life, in countless clients' lives um, and just like in this greater community and my podcast, my Instagram account. And it also has limitations that, you know, are related to privilege that aren't really fun or glamorous to talk about. So To close this conversation, we're going to talk, uh, kind of circle back to that question, which is how do you deal with intuitive eating when considering food waste and a lack of income for food? So we definitely address the second piece, the lack of income for food. The other piece on food waste is a great question that um, comes up a lot with the clients who I work with. And it's it's a great question because even if you don't deal with food insecurity, you might just feel guilty wasting food, which is so valid. Of course, it's it's not great to waste food. It doesn't feel good. Um, and so it's something that like in general, people want to try and limit if possible, which I think is a beautiful thing. What I share with my clients on this topic is a little bit of food waste is part of the process. As you are getting to relearn your body, its cues, your preferences, Yes, a little bit of food waste might happen. However, in the grand scheme of things, food waste is so much less while practicing intuitive eating as opposed to while participating in diet culture. And this is because when you are participating in diet culture, you are buying a ton of shit that you don't necessarily actually want or like, but you feel pressured to buy it because you feel like it's what you're supposed to do to achieve a certain image of health or status or whatever. Then, you know, I don't know how many people listening can relate to the experience of like having all these produce that you had all these dreams of of eating go rotten in the produce straw. I had one client who um she told me that like 
she always would buy like bee pollen and hemp and chia seeds and all these things that she's like brand and like brand powder that she thought she had to be having because she was very much steeped in wellness culture, but it would just sit there in her pantry and she would never use it. And so in the grand scheme, she wasted so much more in diet culture versus you know, the little bit of waste that comes when you realize you're full and it's like not enough to save and you throw it out as an intuitive eater. So I like to really draw this kind of comparison of like, absolutely, it doesn't feel good to waste. Waste is a part of the process. And in the long run, you will waste so much less when you really are honoring what you actually want. And when you're really in touch with how much food feels good for you, these are skills that will grow as you continue to practice intuitive eating they will ultimately result in less food waste than continuing to participate in diet culture. Okay, closing thoughts. I said, I think I said closing thoughts already, but you know, here I am. This is a Jewish goodbye. Closing thoughts. A really important thing to know is even if you just listen to this entire podcast episode and you're like, okay, I I don't struggle with food insecurity, I want you to know that dieting or chronic restriction of any kind creates an experience of perceived food scarcity in the body. Your body, your brain does not know the difference between we actually do not have the financial means or physical access to acquire food and like, yes, we have the financial means of acquiring food, but we have these rules that prevent us from being allowed to have this food. Your brain does not know the difference. It registers restriction. It registers that food is scarce in your environment, even if it literally isn't. Even if you have all of the money in the world, if you are living with these rules, these restrictions, your brain feels like, okay, all these foods are off limits. Our access to, to fuel is scarce because that's the experience we've created. So I want you to think about this. If you are a person who has the privilege of financial stability, of food access, of, you know, not only food access, but having access to anything you might be craving, anything you might be, be desiring, if you have this privilege, yet you are still dieting and still restricting, I want you to really think about this. Your brain feels like you're in an experience of true food scarcity. That's what dieting does to your brain. This is why you're constantly thinking about food all the time and and feeling like it's hard to stop when full because your brain's like, oh my God, if we stop eating this, is there going to be another period of restriction around the corner and we're not going to be allowed to have it again? If you are blessed to have food security and have the financial means of you know honoring your, your cravings, your satisfaction, yet you continue to live in diet mindset and are restricted, I just want you to think about the the implications of your body literally registering this as food scarcity. That is not an exaggeration. Um, There's a lot of research to back this this up. So I I find that to be kind of a humbling thought, um, especially given the reality of, of how stressful and difficult it can be to navigate a situation of like chronic food scarcity. Okay, wait, one last thing we didn't touch on was the navigating intuitive eating on a budget. Um, My tips here are not hot takes. They're just kind of general tips. Frozen meals are your friend. Lean into frozen meals. You can spruce them up. You could um, add herbs and spices. You could crack an egg on anything and and it can be a little fancier. canned foods as well, leaning into things like meal prep. Meal prep can 
come from a place of intuitive eating as opposed to a diet culture intention. Um, we have an episode on meal prep with Talia Corin. It was like three weeks ago, I think. You can go back and look at that. There was, that's uh, that's honestly my best tip to, to handle intuitive eating on a budget because you really can save so much with um, cooking for yourself, cooking ahead of time preparing so that you don't end up in these situations where you're spending a bunch of money on takeout if, if that's not um, within your budget right now. So those are just a few tips on intuitive eating on a budget. But in general, I think a lot of things that we covered in, in this episode can kind of be more widely applied to navigating intuitive eating on a budget. So I hope that this episode was helpful for you. Um, beyond that, I just feel glad to be speaking on this topic because as I said in my research for this episode, I really didn't find much. And I think it's important that somebody talks about it instead of us all just sitting around with this elephant in the room that, yeah, there are these barriers. There are these limitations of intuitive eating. Okay. So that is all for today's episode. If you have been enjoying the podcast, if you've been getting value from the podcast, it would truly mean so much to me if you could take a few moments to leave a rating and or a review or share this podcast with someone who you think it might resonate with. The more we can spread the word, the more people can be reached by this anti-diet intuitive eating message and that's a beautiful thing. That's my whole goal with this podcast. And your reviews and ratings really help to um, get the podcast more traction and get it to reach more people. So I really, really appreciate um, any ratings and reviews are welcome. I hope that you have a good week and that's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, if it inspired you, if you learned something, it would mean so much to me if you rated it and reviewed it. And if you feel called to, share it with someone who it might resonate with. You can find me on Instagram at leahkern.rd. You can also join my weekly newsletter by visiting leahkernrd.com. And I'll see you next week.